Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Teresa Regan. I'm a neuropsychologist, a certified autism specialist, and the director of an adult diagnostic autism clinic in central Illinois. I am the author of books, a speaker, and your host for Autism in the Adult podcast. Today we're going to continue our question and answer series. It's kind of a mini series. This is number two and will be our final part of the question and answer episodes for a bit of time. We're going to pause on those and in the future we will bring back some more episodes. Today's questions um, that I'm going to be answering from listeners across the world um, are a little eclectic. So we're just going to go through various topics and respond to those. Um, The first question I'm going to tackle is about CBT therapy uh, for those on the spectrum. And this stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, What this refers to is a talk therapy where the individual in the sessions uh, works with a therapist to identify their inner state and their outer state. So what are my thoughts and feelings and what are my behaviors? And those three things are linked. Sometimes they'll add kind of a fourth category, which is what am I feeling uh, physically in the moment? Um, So the basis of this therapy is to realize that when we feel angry or afraid, Um, that a lot of times there are thoughts that we have or beliefs that we have that kind of trigger or feed into um, this outcome of having an emotion that feels difficult. So if I am um, really uh, believing and thinking in my head that nothing ever goes right for me, And let's say I have a flat tire on the way to work and um, I just feel so uh, discouraged and hopeless. And I'm not really sure why it hit me that much that a flat tire would do that. Well, in this type of therapy, the therapist would help the person say, well, what kinds of things were you thinking uh, related to that emotion? So the person is trying to train themselves to become more aware of the thoughts that were linked with that emotion of hopelessness. And, uh, you know, maybe they realize that they are saying to themselves this internal mantra of uh, things are never going to get better. Nothing uh, happens um, to give me a break. Nothing goes right for me. So then, you know, the person can then challenge those thoughts and they they can say, well, is it 100% true that nothing ever goes right for you? And it's not really that the therapy teaches you to replace negative thoughts with positive thoughts. It's that it teaches you to replace um, really skewed thoughts uh, to be more realistic thoughts. So instead of nothing ever goes right for me, uh, the therapist would challenge you to get a more realistic statement. And and maybe the statement that you come up with is, 
boy, having a flat tire uh, really is not what I wished would happen today. It is an inconvenience. Um, It will pass. And there actually have been several good things that have happened lately as well. So that would be kind of this more realistic thought, which then affects our emotion to be one of more kind of mild discouragement without a tailspin down into a more despondent state. Um, The listener was asking uh, whether this approach to therapy can um, kind of treat the person as a collection of symptoms without a psyche and um, being more of a person who's conditioned than behaviorally conditioned um, in their life experience. So um, what I would say to that is that it's really quite a bit more complex than just behavioral conditioning. I know that, you know, if you've studied Skinner or read things about Pavlov's dog, you can get um, certainly a pretty extreme view of what conditioning um, uh, kind of is made up of. But the CBT therapy really focuses more on helping you identify thought patterns and behavioral patterns that are just not very healthy to your well-being and then adjusting those. Um, The listener was asking whether I think this is a good um, type of talk counseling for someone on the autism spectrum. So what happens is um, in the therapeutic world, CBT is often... um, it's really often recommended for everything. Um, it's considered a gold standard in various ways. Um, insurance companies think highly of it and will reimburse for it. Um, in reality, when therapists use CBT therapy, they're probably mixing in a bit more eclectic approaches. Um With regard to autism, I know there's even at least one book about CBT and autism. I I use it um, intermittently with some of my clients as a piece of what we're layering in, but um, I would say it's not even making up 50% of maybe the approach that I would take. And my concern with it is this, that It's really based on the uh, um, premise that if we teach someone to retrain their thoughts, that they will have a different thought and that then, you know, this will relieve their anxiety or this will um, relieve the depression that they're struggling with. And I think there's some value to that. Um, My concern about using this And autism is that it doesn't really acknowledge that we're talking about a neurologic base. And if you're assuming that you can shift every area of distress in a person's life by just having them think differently, um, I think it really kind of sets up um, expectations that aren't very realistic Uh, just by teaching someone to have a different intellectual thought. 
So the neurology of our intellect and what we know as facts uh, doesn't always hang together with that neurology of experience and what I can pull off in my daily life. And there can be this great disconnect that's kind of enhanced in neurologic conditions where, yeah, I intellectually know A, but my nervous system is responding uh, differently. It's still very heightened in its responses. It still overreacts to sound. You know, it still becomes overwhelmed in crowds. And changing the way I think about it is not going to be as effective as it might for, you know, the client with my other example. I have a neurotypical neurology. I tend to think uh, extreme negative thoughts about myself and my circumstance, and I happen to have a flat tire. Well, that's different than the student who um, can't tolerate being in the school building because it's so neurologically overwhelming. And asking them to think differently about how overwhelming it is, I think, uh, would be inappropriate. So an example of looking at cognitive distortions and CBT therapy would be, for example, that um, a therapist might point out to a client that they have black and white thinking. So this, this experience was all bad and this experience was all good. And that's not really capturing reality very well. So let's think of something that's really um, not all good or all bad, but in the middle. Well, in the autistic client, that's a bit of a problem because their neurology does lean toward black and white thinking or categorical thinking. Uh, This is all good. This is all bad. Or this was a success and this was a failure. And there are degrees to which individuals with the autistic neurology can consider more abstract and complicated kinds of um, beliefs and thoughts. But in general, that's going to be uh, very likely neurologically difficult. And so when you get in that area, it's kind of like sending someone to uh, change their thought process uh, uh, to help them see colors better. So Um, you're not very good at color recognition. We're going to examine all your thoughts and and try to get you back on track with your peers uh, when in actuality this person is colorblind. Well, you're not going to improve colorblindness with cognitive behavioral therapy. You're not going to improve diabetes with cognitive behavioral therapy. You may be able to work on some of their thoughts about their health, Uh, the way they react and engage in diet and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I think if we're using cognitive behavioral therapy, we should be very aware of its strengths. Again, I do use that at times, and then also its limitations within different um, patient groups. So that would be my thought about that. So I would focus more in therapy on helping people recognize their neurologic patterns, increasing that self-awareness, creating strategies that will help the neurology kind of move forward in those areas. So what are strategies that you can calm your nervous system with, for example? Uh, That was a great question. I appreciate that. Um, I also had a question from a mother who asked, 
um, you know, what could I do when my young adult child with a diagnosis uh, is really resisting talking about autism and feeling categorized and kind of pigeonholed um, if that discussion comes up, feeling sick of everything being described through the autistic lens and therefore dehumanized. Um, so this is such an individualized um, internal state, right? We all have kind of different reactions of what we can take in and process, how we feel about things. And essentially, this person seems to be saying that they don't really feel seen and heard. Um, and that's an awful feeling, um, even if people around them feel like, yes, I do see you, I do hear you. Um, you know, that that internal feeling is still difficult. Um, I think uh, the best outcomes usually are when we allow people the freedom and space to process things differently than we are. Um, I have to say that I don't, um, you know, listeners who've been with me for a while probably know that I have an adolescent son on the spectrum. And I have to say that I don't really talk about autism that much at home uh, as far as using that word. So maybe this will help. Um, I don't think we have to bring up the term all the time, but um, it certainly is something people are free to talk about. So we give them that freedom. But what we tend to talk about more in our household is, you know, what do you need today? What does your system need? And I talk about what my system needs. And then I ask, you know, my husband, how, how have things gone for you? What do you need? And we try to learn that kind of talk as a family. And what my son needs is going to be different than what my husband needs and what I need, just because we're individuals. And his individuality, my son's, includes the autistic neurology. It also includes other things. He's at a different season of life than I am. His um, school and peer uh, kind of demands on him are different. The pace of his day is different. His physical state is different. And so uh, we kind of process it that way, that um, we're each individuals um, and how we're doing is important. And how can we work as a group to help each other get what each person needs and then there will be some things that, you know, are just important to discuss. We can't shy away from something that's really important for their health or wellness because we don't want to process things about autism. But um, a lot of times we can just talk about each person's individuality. Like, um, it looks to me like you've had a really rough day. Would it feel better to talk about it or do you need alone time? Or you could say, you know, we have a lot of stuff coming up. You've got college applications. You've got some job interviews. It's really important to nail some of this down. But I'm wondering whether you'd like to process it face-to-face, -face, whether you'd like to email together about it, and you can put together some thoughts. Um, you know, so sometimes, again, you can process and say, this topic is kind of non-negotiable. We have to figure something out. 
but how could we talk about this in a way that meets where you're at? Um, And also just being sure to talk about a lot of things not related to the nervous system that um, we give each other compliments, like you're really good at this. And I just, I wish I had your eye for detail. I wish I was as artistic as you are. I wish um, I had some of the spunk that I see in you. I really love that. And this helps them know that we are seeing them as a whole person and we do love them and value them. Um, So those can be a few ways that we can round out. What you don't want to do is uh, sometimes when someone shuts down or resists or walks away, what you don't want to do is then have some chasing after them. This is a really difficult family dynamic and I see it in couples and families and in the workplace. It's just a very um, common thing if someone becomes quiet that we're trying to talk to and they withdraw, we can have some chasing behaviors, whether that's actually physically following them, whether it's saying, you know, no, you have to talk about this. This is important. Um, That kind of chasing in the relationship usually just makes things worse. So um, I would focus more on strategy. Like I can see this conversation is really tough. Um, how and when would you like to process this? Other than that, it may just be helpful for the family or the parent or the individual to have a counselor that they can process individualized recommendations with. That's a tough one. It's a tough season and difficult things to to talk about. Um, The next question from a listener is kind of related. It's about parenting. And this time it's about parenting in neurodiverse couples, which means that uh, one of the parents is on the spectrum and one is not. So, um, you know, there are differences in their nervous systems and in what they lean toward, what their strengths are, what kinds of um, things challenge them. And so this, this listener is asking this as a parent and uh, part of a couple. So they're trying to parent their kids and their spouse. Um, I'm not sure uh, who is who, but one of them has that autistic neurology. And the person is pointing out that, you know, parenting is a lot of uh, just loud, chaotic, messy, unexpected things going on. You've got uh, the need to communicate as parents, um, the need to be consistent. You've got sensory overload in the house. You've got distractions and changes to routine. So that is a great point that if anything is going to kind of challenge the neurodiverse couple, this, this is really difficult. And so Uh, My brief answer is I would say a couple of things. One is what I just talked about uh, for the other listener, that sometimes really being direct and forthright about where are you at today? What do you need? Or, uh, boy, it looks like this kid is really melting down a lot. That's the state they're in. How are we going to get this 
kids' needs met. And this other one has homework to do. How are we going to? So kind of taking a survey of the land. And we all need to do that, but sometimes we forget to do it kind of explicitly that we think our spouse will see what needs to be done or agree with us. And sometimes when couples go to counseling and maybe they're talking about parenting strategies, um, you kind of get the sense that one of the partners is saying, why can't you be like me? You know, why can't you parent like me? Why can't you see what needs to be done and um, kind of do it the way I would do it? Um, so part of that of success in that kind of role is having this increased self-awareness. Okay, I really get that your neurology is different. These are your strengths. These are the things that challenge you. And and that that's different from my neurology. And so sometimes what can help, once you have this increasing awareness and these open discussions about how you each work differently, um, one of the things that can help is to have a huddle in the morning and in the evening. By huddle, I just mean like there's kind of a brief checking in about the status quo. Like, what's your day like today? Uh, do you have everything you need? This kid needs to be picked up, blah, blah, blah. So, so there's this coming together in the morning to say, you know, again, like in a sports analogy, um, huddle is this image of um, the sports players getting together on the field and saying, this is the play we're going to use. Uh, it's so funny because I remember one of our um, high school friends at a reunion, and he was saying, you know, once you go from two kids to three kids, you know, it's like you have to go to a zone defense. You can't be one parent on one kids anymore. So that's the kind of thing, like in the morning, what's our game plan? How are we going to divide this up? Um, and then in the evening as well. And sometimes in the evening, it's even more important. So you've had this whole day of experience and you're coming together. And there's these things that need to be done. So part of the evening huddle can be, my day at work was unexpectedly horrible and I feel like I'm about to collapse. <laughs> and I also see that the kids are laying on the floor screaming and somebody's drawing on the wall with crayons and you, you're crying. And um, so what? I, let's triage. What is the most important thing we have to do? <laughs> and what do you need? This is what I need. And then getting a game plan. Like I need 20 minutes of no touching and talking and anything. And then I'm going to come back out. You take the kids for a ride and I'm going to clean, you know, so that kind of thing. Also, I think that a lot of times when we have this increased self-awareness, we can assign tasks based on the person's strengths uh, rather than hoping that everybody does all of the stuff. So, you know, one spouse may love doing laundry and organizing and throwing things away. And this feels really satisfying to them. But they really have a tough time giving the kids a bath. Like it's sensory overload. They struggle a lot. 
So if there is a way to integrate in, you know, one parent might say, you know, giving the kids a bath is not hard for me at all. So I'll do that. You do what what you connect with. And then these other stuff, you know, the other things that we both hate, we'll just try to share the load and get through some of the stuff we hate. Um, another way is to reduce talking. I think one of the ad- pieces of advice that I give uh, um, family members the most is to talk less. Um, I think our go-to strategy for improving things is often talking about it again and again or asking or questioning or um, nagging or talking. And a lot of times for the autistic, that makes a difficult situation like more overwhelming. So you want me to do this and I have to socially communicate about it? That's really draining. Um, So one way to reduce talking Uh, You can have a code word that if a person, one of the parents is about to just melt down, they're in dire straits, they need to stop this conversation or they need to stop being in the room with the kids. You guys can use a code word. So uh, you could pick something that's funny. You can pick something that's um, an inside memory or something. And if someone says that word, You don't have to talk it through. Everybody just knows that that person needs to leave and regroup. So it could be pineapple. It could be Hawaii or whatever uh, has meaning. And then you can cut down some of that talking in the moment. Uh, Also, a way to reduce talking is to use refrigerator magnets. So sometimes people in families will want to know how everyone's doing, but this conversation about how I'm doing and how are you doing, that's really draining. So uh, for instance, you could use uh, refrigerator magnets that are from one to 10, and you can have it represent anything. So maybe it's your stress level, that everybody has a column on the fridge where they can put their number. And so if someone comes home from school and they walk in and they don't talk and they pass mom or dad and they put that number seven out of 10 on there and walk to their room and shut the door, that is a way of communicating that my day was really overwhelming and I need to be alone. So the parents feel like they have a sense of what just happened. There's some communication but we don't have to sit down and socially communicate, which is also draining. Um, And also just thinking about as a couple, uh, you can't always plan um, all the things that happen in a family. And, but sometimes, you know, when you're together newly as a couple, you can talk about, oh, you want six kids? Well, I want I'm thinking I would want one. I think it would be really overwhelming for me. Uh, and and to try to make plans for your family that take into account everyone's temperament and personality and nervous system. Um, another listener asked about things related to the workplace. Um, one question was about 
you know, it's really difficult to know how to negotiate about raises or other issues in the workplace because I feel like I'm not sure if I'm being taken advantage of. I'm not sure if I'm asking for too much or too little. And I don't know how far to push things or how to say it. Um, and, you know, this person feels like as an autistic individual, it, it feels harder to um, just get a feel for the room. Like, what is politics? What is, uh, what should not be said in this room? Um, and, you know, that is a, a really good point. A lot of negotiation is getting a feel for how hard to push. You know, I think taking advantage of all the data approaches that are available in this age of technology can really help in that regard. I'm not sure about different countries or cultures, but in the United States, there's been a big push, particularly over the last 10 years, I would say, um, to be very data-oriented in um, comparing salaries across the region, across the United States. There's more available on the internet um, as far as benchmarking what is common. Um, I really relate to this listener's challenge. I'm not really good um, at those things either. So what I tend to do is every five years, there's um, an article published about common um, benchmarks for neuropsychology salaries. And then, of course, our workplace benchmarks things. I'm hoping that in the future, it will become even more transparent, that when you see a job ad, it will just have the salary in the ad. And again, I don't know if other countries do that, but um, there, it's almost like a card game where you're not quite sure um, what benchmark the employer might be using. They don't show all their cards necessarily. Um, but it, I do think that as a strategy, it can help anyone, particularly someone that wants to go by data, to kind of have data, to put it in a proposal and to, to hand that in to your boss to say, you know, this is some data that I found, and I wanted to talk about that with you. And I would also suggest that you give data about yourself. And so you can kind of think of um, like a State of the Union address <laughs> where um, you can give your boss a summary of all the things that you have accomplished um, either that year or in the past five years. And bosses know that in the moment, but I do find that giving the summary snapshot and highlighting all the things you've done, um, that's data as well. And sometimes, you know, your boss just cannot have all of that in their head. And they'll often say things like, oh my gosh, that's right. You did this and that. And you know, for someone in sales, they can say, I earned the company this amount of money, etc. So you can hand in data points both about salary benchmarking and also highlighting how you've benefited the company, what kinds of things you've accomplished. Um, so I would start there. Just try, try a very data-oriented approach. 
Another question was about how to pursue accommodations in the workplace. Um, they seem so open-ended. It's difficult to know what's reasonable as a request, who to talk to, et cetera. Um, so I would say a few things. You, I would look on the internet for common accommodations for autism or other things. And the site that I often go to to look is called askjan.org. JAN stands for Job Accommodation Network. Again, this is in the United States. Um, and again, in the line of having data, this gives a lot of common accommodations that could be requested for a variety of conditions. So you would type in autism as, you, as the condition that you want to ask for accommodations under. So you have to have kind of a um, something that's considered um, qualifying for that accommodation. And then what I would say is uh, jobs want these accommodations to be individualized. They don't want to just have a list of 200 accommodations that you want. So I would say look through those and think about your own self-awareness in areas that are particularly easy or difficult for you. And try, uh, try some of the strategies if you can. So um, if you're going to ask for an accommodation to wear noise-canceling headphones in your cubicle while you're working, um, you know, try some of that at home and see if those headphones really help you. So you can tie it into, let's say you've gotten feedback that you're really struggling with timeliness, that things are taking too long, and that's part of that executive function piece of autism. And you can say, you know, I realize um, that this has been a struggle for me. I really listened to that feedback, and I want to improve that. The strategy that I'd like uh, to pursue is to wear these noise-canceling headphones uh, because it really helps me focus. Um, I don't have to be processing through all of the noise around me. Uh, and then, um, you know, if they say yes, that's great. You can talk to them about why. It kind of just depends on what kind of relationship you have there. If they just come back with, well, that's not part of our dress code, uh, then you can present um, documentation of your diagnosis and, and just say, how could I get this formalized that I'm formally asking for this accommodation? They'll probably send you through to HR, to human resources, um, and you can do it that way. There was a question about preventing seizure episodes that are non-epileptic. Um, non-epileptic means that the seizures look like uh, seizures when people are watching and observing, um, but they're not electrical, so that when the person is hooked up to the EEG and they see the manifestation of the seizure, they can see that it's not electrically generated through the brain. And what that means is that it's non-epileptic, and these are things that are triggered by stress and uh, really being overwhelmed or traumatized. And um, I do have a blog post on that, um, so I will put the link in the show notes. 
And also I would recommend listening to the podcast episodes. We have some series about how to help people with regulation. And that's how I would address these non-epileptic seizures, that these are signs, these are clues that the person is dysregulated, that they're overwhelmed. So rather than trying to talk them through, I would use the recommendations in the regulation series, and I will link to the first of those series. Uh, I think there's four in that podcast series uh, here in the notes. Um, it should be noted, too, uh, if it interests you, that the, this phenomenon of non-epileptic seizures is more common for autistics than for those who are neurotypical. Finally, there was a question about why diet and motivation for exercise can become harder with age for the autistic who's entering um, their 40s or 50s. Um, I think that that's really tied in a lot with the executive function issue we talked about where, um, and I guess I'm referring to the podcast series on uh, behavioral motivation, exhaustion, getting going. So the center and front part of the brain is in charge of executive function. That's always somewhat impacted or involved in autism. And part of that has to do with what's called behavioral initiation. So how do I get started from this stopped state? It's really hard. Not only is the individual probably likely to have difficulty with the getting going part of behavior anyway, but executive function can become more difficult, um, less efficient and easy with age. Uh, we talked about this in our aging episode where um, executive function is always going to be a bit harder as people age, so their thought process might feel slower, they can't multitask as well, some of the details of their memory gets harder, and also this behavioral activation can also be impacted. Another thing I think that makes this difficult in autism is that for many people on the spectrum, it's difficult to think abstractly about likely outcomes. Um, if you ask someone intellectually, what's likely to happen if you don't take your medicine or if you don't exercise, sometimes they can recite a bunch of facts, but it doesn't really feel real um, unless they've actually already experienced it. So if I say that to someone uh, there may be an autistic individual who says, well, how would I know what would happen? It hasn't happened yet. Other people can state facts that they've learned, but in a lot of ways, those feel theoretical. They don't really feel real. Um, and for example, I have had patients who say, well, I took cholesterol medication for a month, but I just stopped it. I didn't feel any better. I didn't feel anything. Um, so this conceptual hypothesis that it's probably doing something important, even though you don't feel it or see it or experience it, you know, that can just be really difficult to grab hold of. Um, a few suggestions if you want to try them. Um, I love time timers. You can get the app 
or you can buy the physical time timer on places like Amazon or other websites on the internet. A time timer is a visual timer. So if you have difficulty um, with time management, if you have difficulty getting going or transitioning from one activity to another, like I'm not exercising now and I have to transition to exercise, um, you can set that time timer and see the visual time disappear. And for some reason, it just feels very real and compelling and concrete in a way that looking at digits or a clock face doesn't quite feel. I love these. I use them in my workplace. Um, I use them at home. Um, so you could set the time timer for when you're going to start the exercise and also for when you're going to end. So I only have to do this until the red disappears. And then it's a very concrete, achievable kind of goal as opposed to this feeling like, oh, I have to start this and when, when is it going to end? Um, another technique that I think can make things more concrete and doable um, is to um, set up something that feels real instead of this concept that exercise is in some way helpful. And of course, as we age, we see the results of that less. Like we, we exercise and exercise and eat, right? And gosh, my body still doesn't look the way that I would like it to. And I'm not really sure what this is doing, but I have faith that it's good. Um, so we can make it more concrete by using things like challenges um, or prompts to move. So there's a lot of technology these days, like um, smartwatches, they can vibrate. Uh, once an hour just to remind us to move or get up and walk. Um, there are challenges on the smartwatches, uh, different ones call them different things, but there can be games. There might be like a fitness bingo or these things where you get icons lit up if you walk a certain number of steps or have your heart rate going as active. So those kind of things can make it concrete and fun. Like I don't know if my cholesterol changed, but I got this, I won this game or I finished this uh, challenge and that felt good. Um, there are also, since COVID in particular, a lot of virtual challenges that you can do with people around the world. So there are challenges where you can sign up to walk through a particular area of the world and people around the world are doing it with you and then you get a medal afterward. Uh, and again, that, that makes it feel concrete. I've achieved this. This was fun. Um, one example of that are the conqueror challenges, but there are a lot of versions of this. And you can Google what really works for you and what you think might help you get that really concrete goal, that motivation. So this wraps up our second and final episode of Question and Answer. We're going to go back to some themes of episodes next. And then in the future, we're going to re return to more question and answers from listeners around the world like you. Uh, if you do have questions, you can email them to adultandgeriatricautism at gmail.com. And I will collect those for episodes in the future. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you join me next time.